Welcome to New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated, and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast. We are going to do a Q&A session. We have several questions, um, primarily having to do with how we address various issues in the Christian life. Um, so we deal with um, some things about the, the problem of evil, uh, homosexuality, the exclusivity of Christ, um, that he's the only one by which we are saved. So we're just going to jump right in. We're going to start asking these questions, and then Pastor Ben and I, who's sitting across my desk from me now, we will a- attempt to answer these as best as we can. And uh, before we do that, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Pastor Ben and I are both finite human beings. We are not perfect by any means, and um, we also don't know everything. So what we're going to do, we're going to try to answer these as clearly as possible and as accurately as possible, but we are these are just our opinions, the way that we understand things now. If you feel offended or worked up by any of these things or you find yourself getting angry, I invite you just to take a break, step away from a little bit. Um, we're going to be thinking off the top of our heads a little bit. We're going to be having a discussion. So um, just know that these are as best as we can answer them now. And certainly don't we don't pretend to know everything at this point. So I just wanted to give that little disclaimer that we're going to try to do this as best we can. Um, but we may not get everything right. So um, the first question, Pastor Ben, that I'll pose to you is um, from one of our members of our congregation, and they asked, if bad things happen to good people, why do some people seem to get an onslaught of bad things while others get off easy? Uh, first of all, I want to interject on that first opening statement. Uh, Pastor Eric doesn't know everything, but I do. And so <laughs> it's a nice little win here for all you listeners. Uh, no, if you guys do hear something or maybe doesn't line up with the Bible, that's great. It means you're testing our statements off yeah. the word and you should be doing that. And we see examples of that in the Bible, but we'd love to continue that conversation. So if you do find yourself in that space, um, come talk to us and maybe we will uh, maybe bring you on or have that question on and, and continue to uh, filter through new understandings and new knowledge. But let's get back to the first question, which is... Uh, Basically, why does it seem like some people have all the luck and some people don't, mm-hmm. right? And so we actually, you know this, and we see this right away in Scripture, that God creates a cause and effect world. And this is very, very intentional. Uh, we see it right away in the garden. We see it in Genesis 2 that uh, it's recorded about the history of the world in this way. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, this is very important. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see these two trees that have interesting abilities. They actually transfer something to the person. It's kind of like a sacramental relationship in the garden already starting and transpiring between God and man. And so we see that one tree brings life, and one tree brings knowledge of good and evil. And you're probably familiar with the story. God says, don't choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that, or you're going to bring death into the world. And so right away, what's so interesting is where does he put the tree? He puts the tree in the garden. He puts the tree in a space where the humans, where Adam and Eve can actually go to it and actually choose or opt into that experience. That means that right away, he's setting us up for a cause and effect world. He's giving us an option in that moment. If he didn't want us to experience sin, all he had to do was remove that tree or put it outside the garden. But instead, he puts it there. And the reason he puts it in the garden is because he knows that love requires a choice. When you went to date that girl or date that guy or to marry 
that man or woman, you know that it required a choice. When you asked them to marry you or they asked you to marry them, there was a choice. You could have said yes. You could have said no. If they forced you into a marriage or they forced you into a dating relationship, that wouldn't be loving, right? In the same way, God puts Adam and Eve there. He wants a real relationship with them. He wants love to actually be there. And so he creates a space for them to have a choice. They can reject his love or they can receive his love. And that relationship continues that way to this day. So they choose the bad choice, right? They, they live in that cause and effect world. They bring sin into the world. They bring death into the world. And ever since then, we are sinful human beings. We're actually built into our DNA. We never have experienced perfection. We've always experienced corruption. And so we choose bad things all the time. And guess what happens? Since there's a whole bunch of us now, those cause and effect choices affect one another. So some people make good choices and they have great outcomes. Some people make bad choices and they have bad outcomes. Some people eat healthy. They have great outcomes. Some people eat poorly. They have bad outcomes. And we see this. Now, what's so interesting is since there's millions of us, right, billions of people running around, our choices also affect one another. And so we make a bad choice. It affects my marriage. It affects my wife. It affects my kids. You have a bad boss. It affects you. And so we have all these positive and negative effects of our choices swirling around. We even see that in, in modern science, there seems to be some strong implications that our choices about how we've cultivated the earth also create positive and negative effects. And so we live in that space. And so why does that happen? It happens because of all the choices of the people and all the choices of the world where some people make good choices or they get in great experiences or great moments. Sometimes it seems like it's just blind luck and they have a positive outcome and some don't. And God, sometimes we see like in miracles and things like that, that he seems to tamper with this a little bit, but for the most part, he leaves us alone. He leaves us, leaves us in our freedom and our, and our choice. And we make stupid choices and we bring destruction. But here's the beauty of this whole thing. Here's the beauty of this thing is that God creates an option, right? He sends his son not to obliterate evil from the world or bad things from the world, because if he did that, he would obliterate you and he would, he would remove me from existence as well because we are bad. We have sin. And so instead of getting rid of all evil, because he would eliminate everybody from the world, he chooses a different option. He creates a way for us to experience life, to experience restoration, to once again give us the most important choice that we can have, right? A choice to not reject the Holy Spirit's working in our life. And if we don't reject that, we receive the benefits that God has to offer. It changes how we see the world because we don't see the world. I mean, we still experience good and bad, but we understand that there's something beyond this, that all the tension and all the pain and all the sorrow in our modern existence, all the bad things that maybe we feel like they have it easy, but we don't, they're healthy, we're not. We understand that after this life, that we're going to be put back into the garden. We're going to put back into that space where God, once again, has restored us. He's made us righteous. We are good. Our choices will be good. And we will once again taste of that fruit of life and experience perfection forever. And so, yes, we live in a world like this. God created the world like this. It was a loving act that we took for granted. We made it destructive. And because of that, we experience bad things in life. Other ex people experience bad things in life. Some people experience bad things and cover it up well. So they have a smile on their face, but really they're wrecked inside. And some people are more forthright with it, right? They look bad. They feel bad. They are bad. And so I would say that God allows us to have these moments because he loves us. It's hard to understand, but someday we will see it very, very clearly. Yeah, and I think on top of creating a world that has natural consequences, which our world does, there's also um, the the fact that um, evil is operate operable in our world right now. So when when the first people decided to take for themselves what only God can do, which is decide what's right and wrong, um, they unleashed into the world death and destruction and evil. Um, so now we have um, sin, the flesh, and the devil. 
that is actually operating against us as people. And so all of the sickness in the world and all of the, the damage in the world is caused um, by the sin um, of humans. That doesn't mean like a one-to-one correlation where if I do something bad, something bad happens to me. Um, but just now, now death and sin is operable in the world. And so I think even this question there, there's a little bit of a miss, I think maybe misunderstanding lying underneath it, that even people who seem to have things go well for them in life still grow old and they, they die. So no matter how lucky you are to have a good job, no matter how lucky you are to have um, great kids, no matter how lucky you are to have money and resources and all these things, you still get sick because your body ages and it decays and you die. Like that still happens. So it's really just a matter of are you going to uh, suffer from sin, um, the flesh and the devil for 65 years or are you going to suffer for 95 like that's really the only difference is that those who seem to have it lucky just suffer for longer <laughs> so they they may live longer but ultimately the end is still the same there's still there's still death there's still pain there's still hurt there's still sickness at the end of life um so really the question is um why do some people just seem to have to do that longer or why do they have more life? Um, and, and so I, I just think that that's uh, maybe the wrong way to ask the question. Um, and in fact, Paul himself said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what did Jesus do? He suffered. He lived a very short life and he suffered rejection from his family, rejection from his friends. And he brutally was tortured and killed. And Paul says to live is that to live is is Christ. Um, and then to die is to gain because no longer do I suffer, but now I'm with, with the Lord. So I think that that question is just a little bit backwards because suffering really happens to everybody, no matter who you are. It just depends on what degree we see it as suffering and also how long um, that actually ends up happening. But, but we are all um, going to suffer. We all are going to experience hard things. Um, Spouses and loved ones die. We we experience disappointment at work. We just experience disappointment in our families. We um, we all have those things, um, and uh, and some of us just don't take it as well or don't have hope to cling on to um, when it comes down to it. And also, we have a God who has suffered and who does suffer. Um, so we Jesus we know um, experienced what a lot of us experience. Uh, he experienced his appointment. He experienced um, anxiety about his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced so he experienced anxiety. He uh, he experienced rejection uh, from his friends. At one point, he experienced rejection from his family, and uh, he experienced a lot of physical pain. So we have a God who who knows our pain and suffered the same fate that we all suffer. Uh, the The joy is that he was resurrected and then offers us that hope as well. So it really isn't a matter of do I suffer or do I not suffer? It's everybody suffers. Some of us just suffer differently than others. Um, but ultimately we all, we all have the same, the same end. And, uh, some of us, uh, put our hope in Christ, which means that we have hope after this suffering and some of us don't. Um, so that's, I think that's maybe the better question. So we're going to move on to uh, another kind of another sticky question, and this is the question of um, homosexuality in the church and homosexuality in the Christian faith. And the person who asked this um, asked it this way, so I'm quoting them: "How do we as Christians respond to the subject of people being gay?" Which may not be the best the best way to ask that question. Um, so I'll ask it this way. Uh, Pastor Ben, how do we here at New Life and how do you think as a Christian, how are you processing the disagreement within the church about homosexuality and the practice of homosexuality? Um, and how do you process our culture um, widely accepting homosexuality when some in the church are vehemently against it? 
Yeah, I think like Pastor Eric, the question maybe isn't phrased the best because the real question that we should ask as Christians is not how how do we as Christians deal with this or how do I deal with this? The real question is, what does God say about it? And how did Jesus interact with people like this? Those are the two big things because as disciples of Christ, we're trying to become like Christ, which means every question that we are answering, every question that we're living out, every response that we have with people should be through that filter, right? How would Jesus respond? What would what would Jesus do? What does God have to say about this? So it doesn't really matter my opinion, even though I try to align my opin- opinions with what God says and how Christ lived and what Christ taught. Um, so we just need to go to the word is the truth. And so some of the best sections of scripture on this subject are actually written by Paul. And so we see a, a great section in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We see another great section in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 16. And, and Paul does something so interesting in these sections of scripture is that when he's talking about homosexuality, he also puts it in with a whole bunch of other sins. And so I just want to work through that passive scripture because I think it's so significant to understand law and gospel as Lutherans, uh, to understand our sinful nature, our identity as sinful people and things of that nature. So let's just dig into 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 16. And of course, there's other sections in the Old Testament, other sections in the New Testament where you can find God's thoughts on this type of behavior and this type of identity. But let's just dig in. So he starts by saying this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so as Lutherans, we have three uses of the law. And the first use of the the law is to allow us to have order as mankind. So God gives us the law, if we use it well, to give us order. And so actually a lot of the laws that you like, a lot of the laws that have protected you in life and protected the world in much of history have actually come from God's law, right? And so God has given us the law to put into practice And if we do that, like Paul says here, it is good. And it's actually a form of love that God gives us order through his law. But it does so much more than that. And so he continues and he starts by saying, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And so we run into the second usage of the law which is that we find out right away, if we're honest with ourselves, that we all fit in that category. We're all sinful. We're all lawless. We all have something where we failed. All all of us have something where we have denied uh, Jesus' lordship in our lives. And so what that points out to us is that we cannot fulfill the law. We are not perfect. And since only perfect beings, only good beings can be in the presence of God and be reunited with him, then we know right away that something has to happen. Something has to happen that will actually restore us. And so we see right away that this actually is another form of law or another form of love where where God loves us so much that he wants to be honest about the reality that we are living in, that we fall short and we need something. And of course, we know as Christians that that something is the work of Christ on the cross. And so... Paul continues, and this is where I think Paul does something very genius, something so important to us as modern day Christians, and probably very important to them in that day as well. See, what Paul wants us to understand is that sin is sin. Sin is destructive, and God defines sin. And so both times when Paul talks about homosexuality, in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, he always puts it in a laundry list of sins. And so this is his list in this context. He says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and then he puts a blanket statement, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In 1 Corinthians, he has another list, and he has in that one, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, coveters, drunkards, revilers, extorters. And I I get this visual of Paul when he's doing this teaching that if it was me 
And maybe Paul did this. He probably just looked around the room and said, okay, I'm going to give you a list and I want you to raise your hand, right? If you have ever struck your mother or father, if you've ever murdered somebody or thought about murdering somebody, if you have any sexual immorality in our modern day, we could say, hey, have you looked at pornography, right? Are you addicted to pornography? Have you strayed outside your marriage? Have you had sex before marriage? All these things, right? He throws in there homosexuality. Have you enslaved somebody, right? Have you treated someone poorly? Have you made them subservient to you? Have you lied before? Have you been drunk before? Have you wanted something that God has not given you, right? Have you coveted before? He just goes through this whole list. And by the end of this, everyone's raising their hand. Everyone's like, I fit on this list. So what do we have to do? You see, every one of these lists, every one of these statements is to show people the second use of the law, right? These are specifically sins. These are things that go outside what God wants for your life. And so if you fall into every one of these categories, which is every one of us, we need something, right? And we know as Christians, once again, we need Jesus. And so Paul continues, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. And so we stumble into the third usage of the law, which is the gospel actually makes the law good. It makes the law something beneficial for us. And so Paul says, now he has judged me faithful. Now, does this mean that Paul was a good guy, that Paul was a perfect guy? The answer is no. He actually goes and lists his specific sins. And he says, though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that in Christ Jesus, this, this saying is trustworthy and true. And it has full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So how did he receive mercy? He received mercy by understanding that he was a sinner and he needed Christ to take his place. So he put his, his faith and his trust in Christ. He receives the benefits of Christ and he's deemed righteous because of that, because he had all those things. He was a bad guy. Sometimes we, we, make him a hero, right? Because he is a hero. But if we look at his story, it's horrible. I mean, Paul was literally killing Christians. That means that later on in his life, he's walking into towns, he's caring for churches, and he's talking to communities of faith that he has probably killed their son, killed their daughter, killed their husband, killed their wife, killed their uncle, killed their grandpa. I mean, can you imagine this guy speaking to you a guy who has murdered someone you loved and then he's teaching you. But that's what he's talking about. All these things, all these corruptions can be forgiven in Christ. And because of that, he has been deemed faithful. And because of that, you and me and everyone else who calls on the name of Christ is considered faithful and righteous. So he closes with this. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You see, right away, we see through Christ, we have transformation in the eternal, right? We're made right before God. That means that we have a relationship with God that starts in this life and continues all the way through the other. But we also see something very important. That third usage of the law is that we are transformed in the present. And that means that every one of these sins that we are told as believers not to live this way, because why? Because these things do damage to our life. As, as Pastor Eric said on Sunday, I thought he did a really good job of saying the bar to get into the community of faith, into the fellowship of Christ, is very low. It's belief in Christ. Belief that he was who he said he was. That he is who he proved he was. However, he loves us far too much to leave us where we're at when we walk through the door, right? And so he wants to remove those sins from our lives because they do damage because he loves us. And like a good father, just like if you have kids, you don't want them to behave however their natural proclivities lead them. You want them to behave in ways that are going to bring life into their life. 
And so Jesus goes back through this laundry list, but it changes this time. It's not a, you are disconnected from me because of this. It's don't behave this way because I love you, right? For Paul, it was stop murdering my people, go in the right direction, make a real impact in this life. And Paul does. For the laundry list of people, it's, hey, you've had, an, you've had an adulterous relationship. You cheated on your wife. Don't do that. Restore that relationship. Hey, you're caught up in pornography. You're addicted to drugs. You're addicted to alcohol. Whatever that might be, stop that. It's destroying your body. It's destroying your relationships. Move from that. Hey, specifically about this question. If you have natural proclivities towards homosexuality, don't go down that road. It will not bring the life that you think it will bring. And we actually see that in our, our suicide rates. We actually see that uh, suicide is, is very simply the loss of hope, right? When you lose all hope, when there's no day that you think will be better than the current day you're living in, you contemplate and you think about suicide. Well, the suicide rate for people in the LGBTQ arena of life, their suicide rate is incredibly higher than the rest of us. Now, why would that be? Because God says that's not going to bring you life. And if you pursue something that you think is going to bring you life and you go down that road, sooner or later, guess what happens? You lose hope because you think that relationship is going to bring you joy. You think it's going to bring you hope. Guess what happens when it doesn't? When you lose hope, you think about the unthinkable, which is ending your life. What's even worse in our modern day setting is um, in, a, in what we call a loving posture, we tell people that have gender dysphoria, people who are, are born with this, this concept flooding around their mind that they are a different gender than what they're biologically born. We tell them that they actually can change their identity through surgery. And guess what happens? Once again, they go through this process and, and they go through all these surgeries and they look different, but guess what? They don't feel different. And once again, when you get to the end of this line and you think you'll have hope and you think you'll have joy and you don't, you lose all hope, especially when you completely change your body and you realize that maybe in the end, this isn't the fix that I was looking for. And so the suicide rate of those who would deem themselves transgender is incredibly higher than even the homosexual community. Now, of course, that's self-evident, right? It's self-evident because they've sought for something that won't bring them joy. And when they lose all hope and when there's no turning back, what's the option left? You see, God loves us so much that he wants to be honest with us. He wants to be honest with us how life works, how he designed life to work, what in life can bring us that spark of joy. And obviously, we're fully complete in Christ. However, he wants to guide us and lead us that third use of the law, that once we're in the community of faith, that he wants to be our father and lead us in the direction that will bring us joy and complete life in this life as best he can to give us a glimpse of what heaven will be like. And I think, unfortunately, in the idea of being loving or, or tolerant that we've, we've washed over a lot of scripture, a lot of very important sections of scripture where it would be so much more loving to care for people, to be honest with people, and to help people. And so when we get back to the core, how should we approach people in the LGBTQ community? We should love them like we love our brother and sister. We should treat them as well as we treat our best friend. We should care for them in an incredible way. And we should have we should have empathy on them because if they're disconnected from Christ and they're disconnected from his truth, then they will do damage to their life. Just like the liar, just like the adulterer, just like the person addicted to drugs and alcohol, just like everything. And so we should love, we should be known as people who love these people more than anyone else. Now we might not agree with their philosophies and ideologies and things of that nature, but despite that, despite them even knowing that, we should still care for them, love them, and definitely welcome them into spaces where they can hear God's truth 
and experience the transformation just like each and every one of us. I, I want to address the biblical. Um, you you address the specific uh, passages that deal with homosexuality in the New Testament. Um, and I want to address a couple of issues that people have that people will uh, disagree with some of the assumptions that you and I, Ben, Pastor Ben, would make. So you and I, we believe that the scripture is the word of God, that it is um, without uh, error in its um, revelation of God to us, and it is for us, and it is written the way it is written for us. Um, not to us, but for us. Uh, so people might respond, hey, what about um, all the other crazy stuff that's in scripture? Or what about all the other crazy uh, things that, that are in the Old Testament? Like, yeah, sure, it says that, um, you know, we, we can't have homosexual relationships, but it also says we can't uh, um, weave two fabrics of two different kinds. And it also says we can't get tattoos. And it also says we can't cut the hair on the side of our head. Um, so I just want to address that, that concern. Um, and what, what we, what we talk about, um, when we talk about scripture is it is written for us today and for all people at all, of all times, but it is not written to us. So scripture has a context and God has in his wisdom for whatever reason, it seems foolishness to me, um, but he's God and I'm not, but in his wisdom, he's chosen to work through people in a particular context and to use their context to reveal himself. So when he, uh, in, in the Old Testament, when he gives these laws uh, to Moses um, about all these various things, he's trying to do something to them, to the Israelites, and he's also trying to do something to us. And the overarching narrative of um, the, the Old Testament and especially the law is that there are a bunch of laws presented that represent main, you know, five or six main themes. And then there's a story of the Israelites breaking it. Then we're presented with a bunch of laws with five or six main themes, and then the Israelites break them. And then it's back and forth uh, five or six or seven or eight times to do that. So those laws are conditioned for their context. They are specific to their context. Um, and we also know that in, uh, Christ, he has fulfilled the law and we are no longer bound to the laws, the 613 laws as they're presented in the old Testament. Um, so then we know that those laws do not apply to us the same way, um, as they did the Israelites. So we just need to take off. Um, I think we need to kind of remove that argument from our, um, from our list. So no, we are not bound to those laws the same way that the Israelites were. There are lots of things that we do that they weren't allowed to. Okay, so what's next? Um, the next thing that we would look at then is what does uh, the apostles, what do the apostles have to say about this? The apostle Paul had several things to say about it. He talked about it several times and you just read off, uh, I think, all of them. Um, so, okay. So then we would say, well, look at this. Now the church... Now that we're in the church, Paul also said that this is not okay. So then the argument would be um, from our uh, friends and neighbors and even brothers and sisters who uh, do not accept Scripture the way that we do would say, well, Paul didn't um, quite mean, he didn't mean homosexuality uh, specifically. He meant um, homosexual rape. And uh, that's a weak argument. The word um, there is not, um, not used exclusively for rape. It actually... And oftentimes in in the Greek world just means homosexuality in general. So that's not a great argument. But the argument that they try to make is that God has, um, there's a progressive revelation that's happening and there's an arc toward social justice that he's opening. So it starts off very exclusive and then we see more and more inclusivity um, of people. And we do see that in some things. So for example, um, when it comes to women, we do see an arc of inclusivity where women are at the beginning of the law and early on in scripture. Um, we, we don't, we act, and we do see, um, actually God quite honoring women early in scripture. Um, but we see the way that the people of God operated was a little exclusive and a little patriarchal. And then as we get into the new Testament, um, we see a gradual opening up of, um, the role of women in, the family and in leadership and in society. 
Um, but there are some exceptions to that. So I don't think that's even quite a good example. Um, we also see the arc of, um, for example, slavery, where early on, um, yes, slaves are permitted. Um, and God has rules about how you can and cannot take slaves from people and how you can and cannot treat slaves. And then even in the, the law, he tells them to release their slaves every 70 years. Um, so there's a little bit of exclusivity, but we get more and more um, uh, inclusive as we go along. So um, Paul, he tells Philemon to accept his slave as a brother, which you don't enslave your brother. So what's the obvious next step? Oh, you would free Onesimus, the, the slave. Um, so we see this arc where things are maybe a little bit um, what we would call primitive, um, a little bit more exclusive, a little bit more rigid, and then there's a general opening up. We do see that in some things, but I do not think that we see that in homosexuality. So we see a pretty clear witness that God has a particular opinion about, about this. Uh, we see um, early on in Scripture in Genesis 1, God creating man and woman together. Um, and it's for the good of the world, for them to populate the world and to rule the world together. He, we have a man who is alone, and God says this is not good. And then he splits the man in half and makes a woman and says now it's good. So women in the relationship with a, between a man and a woman is redemptive because she is the um, helper, which that word is only used to talk about God himself and Eve. Those are the only two uh, individuals that get talked about in that way. Um, so we see that God has a design for the world. And then we see Jesus respecting that design and even commenting on the design. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't say that it's wrong. He actually used it as an example of what's right. Um, what we do see is we see Jesus elevating um, single people as well. Um, so he talks about eunuchs and, and he actually gives them a place of honor. We also see Paul himself um, giving a place of honor for people who are single. So um, the scripture has a lot to say about sexuality and it has a lot to say about uh, attraction and, and desire. And um, apparently there is a right way and a wrong way. And the ideal, um, as Jesus and Paul both says, is singleness. Apparently that's the ideal. Paul says it's better not to be married and Jesus honors um, those who are eunuchs. So I think that the problem that we, we run into is when we idealize um, sex and we idealize family and we idealize relationships because to Jesus and to Paul, um, the ideal is singleness. And it's actually a sign of weakness in the kingdom when people get married, which is not how we talk about it. Uh, people who are single as, are looked at as kind of weird in the church. So I think that we need to address that as well. So singleness is the ideal, and if you must um, get married and have children and have a family, uh, procreate and rule and have dominion over the earth that way. So I would think that if Jesus intended um, for us to have uh, sexual relationships with um, whoever, whomever we wanted, um, he would just say that. I think that he would say that. I think that he would gear more of his teaching toward that and would make that... Um, more evident in his teaching and in his in his life. I think Paul would do the same thing, um, but that's just not what we see. So we don't see a gradual opening up of um, sexuality um, for believers, for the people of God. We don't see that in scripture. We see a very clear witness about um, what sex is, is for, and it's for our good and for procreation and uh, for building families and building communities. Um, and so I think that that's, that's good and it's good for us to acknowledge that. Um, so I think maybe, uh, I would, I would say to the person who asks, well, what do we, how do we respond to people being gay? I would say, well, how do you respond to people being single? Because in our society, being single is worse than being gay. People are not honored when they're single. And the other response I would have is, um, your response to someone being gay should be your response to someone being anything <laughs> that's uh being gay. Isn't the issue. Attraction is not the issue that we're dealing with here. Um, you can be attracted to anybody or anything you want. Um, that's just, that's just how you're wired. There's nothing, um, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, attraction does not mean anything. 
uh, what what does mean something is how do you use that desire? Uh, do you um, abuse other people by playing videos in your head of um, you having intercourse with them? Um, and Jesus says that's a sin, that's wrong, um, that's an abuse of the other person. Uh, do you engage in uh, sexual behavior with that person outside of the covenant of marriage? That's a sin. Uh, and then also, do you engage with sexually with the same sex? That is a sin, according to uh, according to Paul. Um, and we believe that he's inspired. Uh, so it's a complex issue. But I would say, when it comes to just the question, how do we respond to people being gay? You just you love them, and that's that. Um, and I think that that can be um, based on your conscience, your conscience as as creative or uncreative as you want. So you can, um, if that means going to um, gay pride rallies and having conversations with people, that's what that is. Uh, but for the love of God, please do not picket um, gay pride rallies or those sorts of things because that is um, just kind of mean-spirited and I don't think very Christianly. Um, but going and having personal conversations, um, I think is a great thing to do. Um, going and offering, um, help and support to, um, people who are gay is a great thing to do. Even if you disagree with how they, they live, you should be a good neighbor, no matter what the person believes or does or acts or says. Um, so do what you can to love them and support them and, uh, and seek their good. Um, and when the time comes, you can have that conversation, but it's not, um, your place to have the conversation first and it's not your place to, um, change your mind. That's the Holy Spirit's place. Um, so how do you respond? You love them, you care for them and you don't treat them like an outsider just because, uh, they are attracted to the same sex. Um, because that's not at all, uh, what Jesus was intending. That's not at all what Paul was intending. Um, when they, when they teach on marriage and sexuality. Um, so the next question that we have is um, another another toughie. Um, so this is a question about the exclusivity of Christ, the claims that Jesus is the only way. Um, and so this is what the person asks. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way, what happens uh, to Jewish people, the chosen, upon their death? And I should say that the, they had the chosen in a parenthetical there. So that is their their wording. So... Uh, ben, I'm going to rephrase the question as I have been doing. Um, how do we understand the role of um, Israel and the role of Israelites um, in the church and in the world today as Christians? I think over the last two questions, uh, we talked just about this before, um, homosexual activity and homosexual people. And now we're talking about Jewish people. Um, not that there's a direct correlation there, but there's a direct correlation in that we know people. We have neighbors. We love people who have these identities. And so it makes these questions very personal. And and so for a lot of us, sometimes we change the answer to the questions based on who we love, who we care about, and who we know. And we can't do that. Once again, we have to go to scripture. And so we have to kind of remove ourselves, the emotional element of these questions and these answers and to simply look for the facts and look for the truth. And so right, right away in that question, we see a quote from scripture, a quote actually made by Jesus when he said this, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father except through me. It's so clear and so straightforward that we could almost just stop there, that Jesus is it. Our faith in Christ is it. He says, no one. He doesn't make any exclusions. He doesn't say if you have a, a certain genetic makeup or you don't, you need me. He says, no one. It means that everyone has to go through Christ. And so as Christians, especially as Lutheran Christians, and maybe that's a more specific uh, delineation because there are different Christians that land in different spheres on here. But as Lutheran Christians, we believe that we are one faith covenant community connected by the cross. That means there was people in the past before the cross, and we're told very clearly, especially in Romans and through other sections of scripture, 
that they had faith in what was yet to come. So they had faith in Christ, even though they only got a glimpse of him, or it was like they were seeing him through the fog, through the predictions and promises of the Old Testament. So they were still saved by faith in Christ. It's just that they didn't see him in the physical form yet. There was those who actually saw Christ, touched Christ, walked the streets of that day with Christ, saw him on the cross, saw him resurrected. And those people, once again, were saved by their faith in Christ. And today, we are also united in that one covenant faith community by looking back at the cross, looking back at the works of Christ, looking at scripture and seeing that truth. So there has always been one faith community, one group of people that are connected to God through the work of Christ on the cross. We're all broken. We're all sinful. We all need the righteousness of Christ put upon us through our trust in Christ, through our faith in Christ. In fact, there's people in the Christian realm, like I said, outside the Lutheran context, that would say the Jewish people are of one covenant and the Christians are of another covenant, that it's not one flowing, revealing covenant throughout time. It doesn't move from old to new. They're always separate. They're eternally separate. And and there's a problem with this because that's not what Scripture says. In fact, you literally have to ignore the entire book of Romans and much of the book of Ephesians to come to this conclusion. And so when people land in the spectrum, it's very confusing to me because once we start this question, we already said, Jesus said, no one except through me. All right. So right away, there's no asterisk there. It's not if you have this much Jewish descent. If your dad was Jewish and your mom wasn't, you're good, or both parents were, you're good. God is not a, a racist. He doesn't pick one group or another because of their d- genetic makeup, their DNA. It doesn't make sense. So we see right away in Romans, the writer of Romans says this, for God shows no partiality, which means that, that God is not partial to the rich or poor, the black or white, or in this context, the Jewish and the Gentile person. There's no partiality. God loves all, and it's all fair game right? And so all through Romans, we, we see this. In fact, in Romans 1, 16 through 17, it says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes that everyone is a keyword, everyone who believes. And then it gets specific to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, what happens to Jewish people who do not believe in Christ? The exact same thing that happens to non-Jewish people that don't believe in Christ. Anyone who rejects the work of the Holy Spirit, God gives them exactly what they want. If they don't want a relationship with God in this life, a relationship with Jesus in this life, God will give them what they want. They don't have to have a relationship. He's not going to force them into a relationship. He's not a cosmic rapist. He's not going to force them into heaven if they don't want to be there with him. That's the bottom line. Jesus is the only way. And to think that someone is saved by their DNA or their genetic makeup is foolishness. And it's counter to scripture. And uh, if you have a pastor teaching that, or you have a teacher teaching that, or you have books that are telling you that, I would say this is what you have to do. You have to read through Romans, read all 16 chapters. And if you can still honestly come to that conclusion that God is going to save someone based on their genetic makeup, I think that, that you haven't been totally honest with yourself and you haven't been open to the truth of God's word because it's very clear. It's very clear that we are one covenant faith community. God used the Israelite people in a very specific way. He brought the Messiah out of that group. We see in his genealogy that there's Jewish people that literate. There's also other people that are Gentile people that are in his genealogy. So of course, God used them in a very powerful way. He chose them. That's that word. He chose them to be able to bring and reveal that truth over time to make the predictions that we base our faith on, and then ultimately bring us the Savior, the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Gentiles, 
not just the Savior of the Jewish people, the Savior of the world, who said himself, everyone has to go through me. Everyone has to go through me. They might not totally understand who he was. They might have just seen him in predictions. They might have just heard stories about him. They were looking through a veil. But now, in our modern context, it's without a doubt. It's not in question. Jesus, the story of Christ, it's everywhere. The Bible is prevalent. Podcasts like this are prevalent. God's truth is prevalent. His creation speaks volumes about who he is. So even if you're still looking through that veil, there's still opportunity but it all points to Christ. And if you reject Christ, you have rejected the eternal relationship, the eternal transformation, and the transformation in the present that God wants to give to you. And if you're teaching that or buying into that or not communicating the faith to your Jewish friends because you're assuming they're good based on their genetics, uh, you're failing them. And that's not a loving posture. And and I, I hope that you reconsider this. I hope you look into God's truth. I hope you question your preconceived notions, the things that maybe you've been taught your whole life, and look into this and ask that question, is this true or is this simply what I want to be true? And if we look through scripture, we look through the writings of the New Testament, it's very clear that we are all saved by faith through Christ. And that's where we need to land because that's what the Bible says. Yeah, you know, I think that there's really two two main issues with this question. One is the exclusivity of Christ, and and I think it's just clear um, in what they quoted the John passage. Um, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through me." To me, that's full stop. No questions asked. Jesus is the only way. So there are lots of issues, or lots of questions that kind of stem from that, and uh, questions of well, what about people who never heard Jesus? What about all the people before Jesus came? What happens to all the people who weren't evangelized um, before they died? And, and we just don't know. So I think that we should and can pray that God gave an opportunity um, to hear about Jesus or to be found in Christ um, either before or after death. Um, and I don't think that that's illogical to think that. Um, that they are um, that they were given an opportunity uh, to receive. Um, I, we we just don't know that. But then there's a second question of um, the Jew- Jewishness, right? And uh, and Pastor Ben, you did a great you know you did a great outline um, of the scripture that just is very clear um, that the covenant that God made with Abraham, with the father of the Israelites, he made. And he um, fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the blessing of Abraham. Jesus is the the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham. So Jesus is it. The Israelites were um, brought about and they were chosen in order to produce Jesus, in order to bring in order to to bring Jesus into the world, and so that we can understand His fullness through God's interactions with, with the Israelites. Um, but Jesus is, is the one. He's it. Um, so that covenant with Abraham was fulfilled by Jesus. It was done. Um, so to me, there's no, there's no like residual covenant that God has. Um, you are exactly right when you said it's not two different covenants. It's all the same covenant. So God's blessing and his choosing, his election... Um, was then passed on to the church. It was given to the church. Um, so I would actually just challenge, you know, the person had um, what happens to Jews and they had the chosen in parentheses is that they're not. The church is the chosen. Uh, the church is the elected one. The church is the, is the, are the chosen people. Um, Jews were covenanted with God and Jesus fulfilled that covenant. And now that we have Christ, the great mediator, it is through Christ that we have relationship with God. And that's it. Um, that's what Hebrew 1 says, where he, where the, the writer says in the past, God spoke to us through prophets, but now he has given us Jesus, who is the fullness of God in flesh, um, who is the exact image and representation of God to us. So that's, and I don't know, maybe that'll get us in trouble with um, some people, because some people have an affinity for uh, Israel politically. They have a, an affinity toward the Jewish people politically and um uh, ethically, I don't know. Um, but, but at the end of the day, they're just people like anybody else. 
Um, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, you know, you claim that you're sons of Abraham, but I say that God could make sons of Abraham out of these rocks, that lineage and genealogy really mean nothing now that Jesus is here. Um, Jesus is it, and he's the, he's the end. He's the, he's the one and the only. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can um, get to the Father except through him. Right. Next question. Is it possible to live in true Christian faith when we live in a society that has such an abundance of possession and luxuries while we know there is so much poverty, starvation, and need in the world? Well, before we answer this question, we got to come to some kind of consistent understanding uh, of this. So the first of all, we need to understand that everything is God's, right? All possessions, they're God's right? We are just stewards of these things. Uh, from that, we should also know that everything should be used for God's glory, right? So every possession that we have been given by God, our finances, our gifts, our talents, all those things were given to steward, they're to be used for God's glory. Uh, the third thing that I want you to understand before we really dig into this is uh, God gives you these things so that you can have a unique influence in the world. So he has entrusted you with these things. If he didn't want you to have them, believe me, you would not have them. So living in the United States, or maybe some of us who have been more successful than the others, uh, we have some more resources. God has entrusted us with those resources. Here's the fourth thing. There's five things I want you to know before we dig in. God places you where he wants you to be. That means that if you were born in the United States, you shouldn't have a guilt about that. Because literally God placed you here, right? He might have put someone else in a third world country. That is his prerogative. Obviously, you don't get to decide where you are born. You're just born, right? So I was born in Minnesota. And you were born some other place. And uh, uh, that's kind of God's prerogative. He puts us there. So here's the fifth one. And this kind of pulls everything together. So God gives us our, our possessions, our luxuries, our influence, and then also, he gives us our unique shape, which is, we talk about this a lot at, at New Life. We talk about it in our journey classes. The, the shape assessment is a way for you to understand how God has made you and designed you. So we talk about spiritual gifts. We talk about your heart, what you're passionate about, what you love. We talk about your abilities, what you're naturally born with, right? Maybe you're athletic or you're smart. Your personality, how do you navigate life with people? And then also your experience. What have you gone through? And so God allows you to have those things. He places you in those, those moments. You have those experiences. All those things design you, shapes you, and then you impact the world. And so right away, the big, the big issue that we ran into is basically since we have these luxuries, since we have these things, and I would toss in our abilities and all these all these statements, everything that God has given us. Basically, how can we live with ourselves is kind of how this is phrased when we know that other people don't have these things, right? And the answer is God has created us in a way to be stewards of all these things, not just our riches, but our personality and our experiences and our abilities and our passions. And so from that, we should be in tune with the spirit right? We should be in God's word. We should be praying. We should be open to his leading. And then we do something about those things, right? So for some of us, he has called us to go to the third world country. He has called some of us to send money there. He has called some of us to do all sorts of things around the world to alleviate suffering and to bring the gospel there, right? That's our most important part as Christians is to bring the gospel. That's the great commission. But for some of us, he has called us to do it where he has planted us. And so for many of us, that's the Sock Valley area. If you're listening from somewhere else, that's where you are, right? And so you are to use your resources for God's glory. You don't have to feel bad about them, but you do have to steward them well, right? It's not, I'm rich or I'm from the United States, so I'm in the top 1% of the world automatically by default. And so if I bleed myself dry, I will honor God by giving my money away. No, 
That's not true, and that's not even helpful. What God is calling you to do is to steward those things well to advance his kingdom. So I believe that God has made some people very, very wealthy and very, very successful. Why? So they can continue to be successful. So that money train can keep rolling in, right? So people keep buying their products because their crop keeps growing or their animals are are really good for people to enjoy eating, whatever that might be. And, and they make a lot of money so that they can expand the kingdom, right? Maybe they are helping the third world country. Maybe they're helping someone down the street in the trailer home. Maybe they're just caring for people well and helping finance the church so the kingdom of God and ministries like this can happen. There's all sorts of things like this. And I think we need to remove that guilt of saying, hey, God has really blessed me, therefore I should feel bad, and switch that conversation to, God has really blessed me, what does he want me to do? And maybe we do end poverty. And maybe we do end starvation, at least in some ways. I mean, Christ said himself, you will always have the poor among us. So obviously, we're not going to actually be able to completely obliterate these things. But in people's need, when we reach out, man, that's a great space and a great place to share the gospel, right? When someone's at their wit's end, maybe it's financially or nutritionally or whatever that is, whatever they need help, that gives us a space to come in and bring some bread, bring some fish, bring some steak, I don't know, whatever, right? Bring some food. And then what do we do? We have a real conversation. We bring the gospel, we bring God's news because the ultimate transformation, the ultimate riches are not in this life. They're in the next. And so when we're dealing with poverty and we're dealing with starvation and we're dealing with all these things, we can maybe mitigate them, but we can't remove them. And then we're going to take those opportunities as a way where people are up against the wall. Maybe they're a little bit more receptive and then we're going to share the gospel with them. And the same is true for people around us. There are certain things that people go through that they're a little bit more receptive about the gospel. It's typically associated with some form of need. It might be an emotional need. It might be a physical need. It might be a fiscal need. And so in those spaces, we show up and we ask them how they're doing. They say, not great. Let's meet their need. Let's care for them. And then let's meet their ultimate need, which is the point of the church, not to be a goodwill group that we just do nice things. We're to do nice things in order to share the gospel of Christ, to show the love of Christ, to point people towards Christ. And so once again, just to kind of sum this up, it's not about feeling guilty. It's about being good stewards. It's about thanking God every day, being very thankful about what he has given us, to not be uh, super excessive with it, right? Not just to fill our own buckets and to fill our own needs, but to use it for God's glory. And here's the beautiful part about it. We're told in scripture many, many times that uh, when we do that, that we will be honored by God, right? When we are good stewards, we are honored by God. And so our ultimate home is not here. Our ultimate home is not a 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 square house that we can build with our resources. Our ultimate home and our ultimate hope is placed on the fact that we get to have an eternal relationship with Christ. And so we should use our resources in lieu of that, not use our resources in lieu of all the things that are bringing us temporary happiness and will never bring us joy in this life. So use your resources well, honor God, feed some people, care for some people, uh, mow your neighbor's lawn, just love people and bring them into a transformative relationship with Christ. That's why you have your resources to resource people with God's truth. To answer the question the way that it is asked, is it possible to follow God? Yes, it is. Yes, it is possible. Now, it'll be difficult, and Jesus um, has a lot to say about wealth. And one of the things he says that it's it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And right now in our world, um, especially in the West and in the United States, we are 
more wealthy and more consumer driven and we consume more than anybody ever has. So we are, we are all wealthy, even those who seem um, impoverished in comparison. Uh, it's difficult. Jesus says it's easier for the camel to get through the eye of the needle uh, than for the rich man to get into heaven. That's It's difficult. It's hard. Um, but it is possible. And um, to just kind of reflect on uh, Pastor Ben, some of the things that you, you mentioned, um, Jesus also indicates that to store up for ourselves is foolishness um, and wicked. And he also seems to indicate that if we don't care for the poor, then we won't get into heaven. Like, and that's hard to, hard to hear. (laughs) Um, But he says it, that there will be people who have come and said, Hey, we've done all these good works in your names. Why don't you let us in? And he said, you, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me drink and I was hungry. You didn't feed me. And they said, when do you, when did we see you do this? And you said, whenever you see the least of these, uh, and you do it to them, you do it to me. And if you don't do it to them, then you don't do it to me. So, uh, obviously the, these are all parts of the Christian life, um, whether or not we like to hear that, um, when it comes to um, our salvation, our salvation is in Christ alone. Uh, but as the formula of Concord, which is the final document in the Lutheran Confessions, it says those who are truly believing will have good wor- works. Um, we do know that there are fruits of the Spirit that drive us um, and that the Holy Spirit does command us and control us if we are filled by him. Um, so good works will happen. There will be a spontaneity to it. Um, and I like what you said when you when you said don't feel guilty about it, because that's not God doesn't operate with guilt. The devil does. Um, God operates with empowerment and spontaneity. Um, at least it seems spontaneous to us. So don't feel guilty. Um, try not to feel guilty, um, but do do your work. Um, so I like what you had to say at the end there. Um, just do it. Uh, be in contact with those who are in need and as they have need, um, do what you can for them as you can. Um, but don't feel guilty. Don't get weighed down by the ethics of buying milk or the ethics of buying macaroni and cheese or whatever it is. Cause uh, you know, every day now there's new ethical dilemmas that face us. Um, but we can't be bogged down by them. Um, so do what you can, um, as often as you can, as much as you can, um, and, but don't feel guilty. So let God lead you um, and, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. 